News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The freezing temperatures are not going away anytime soon as an Arctic outflow continues to put the lower mainland in temperatures below zero degrees. How are those in our midst who are homeless find a way to stay warm? Uh, there's an interesting piece in today's Vancouver Sun about people living in campers and, and RVs and such. Brooke Mellis is Director of Homelessness Services for the City of Vancouver, checking in with us this morning. Brooke, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. Nice to have you with us today. Talk to us a little bit about the, first of all, Brooke, the uh, the shelters that are available on a regular basis, and then the emergency super cold shelter uh, situation that comes about when, when we have moments like this. Sure. Um, Year-round, there's approximately 1,350 shelter beds available within the city of Vancouver throughout the year. Um, and then during the winter months, there is uh, temporary winter response shelters that are opened in partnership with BC Housing. Um, so those are open nightly between November through March. And that adds a, a, a bit of extra capacity as well. Um, in addition to that, the, the next suite of programs includes extreme weather response shelters. Mm-hmm. Those are also a uh, partnership between the City of Vancouver and BC Housing and nonprofit partners. That adds another um, approximately 114 shelter spaces. Um, but that those open when the weather feels like um, zero uh, or is zero and or an accumulation of rain or snow. Mm-hmm. So those are activated at that time. And finally, when we get to these extreme temperatures, um, when it's uh, minus five, when it reaches minus five or below, or feels like minus five or below, the city of Vancouver also activates um, additional spaces by way of warming centers. Um, so those are you know, meant to keep people Safe, alive, warm, come inside, um, have a hot drink, some snacks, and and really keep safe from the elements. Indeed. Uh, for example, we saw we Global News did a feature on this the other day, Brooke, talking about uh, the shelters, as you just have. Some of those uh, agencies, like, for example, the Union Gospel Mission, always has shelter space available. But during these emergency cold situations, they I believe it was 82, they were able to add 82 more beds. But, of course, still uh, saying in the same breath, Essentially, this is helpful, but it's certainly not taking care of everyone. So as as we are in this this deep freeze, cold snap right now, uh, where do people go who don't know where to go, uh, who, are, who are sort of new to the city, uh, who are just sort of trying to find their way? Uh, where do they uh, typically go? Um, so I, in addition to those year-round shelters, there are, um, you know, these... Um, extreme weather shelters are available in different parts of the city. Um, and then the warming centers as well. There's another seven sites that we're able to open. Um, in addition to that, during the day, the city has uh, community centers open throughout the, this period. Um, libraries, for example, the Vancouver Public Library's atrium was open through Christmas and Boxing Day. Um, so just really trying to be creative about creating more options for folks to come indoors. 
And uh, what about in terms of support? Uh, is there measurable increase in terms of community support during these obvious times of, of dire need? Uh, so these these places are all staffed, and we're really grateful to our um, community partners and their staff who make this happen, especially sure. during the the long weekends and holiday holiday period here. Um, and um, yeah, I mean donations are always accepted at any of the any of the sites as well, and community is quite generous around um, supporting through donations as well. And uh, as far as uh, keeping account, I mean, we, we, uh, I'm, I'm curious only from the point of view of because you as the director of homelessness services for our city, Brooke, this is this is kind of your bailiwick. You have to keep an eye on things and essentially have a, a strong feeling for how many people you're dealing with on a daily basis. And on a super cold Tuesday morning like this at 6 a.m., how many people are are you worried about this morning? Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, the, the last homeless count um, had shown there was approximately 2,000 folks who were, who were unsheltered homeless, um, but, uh, or sheltered or end unsheltered homelessness. But that number varies throughout. People do, um, you know, get creative in finding ways to ensure they're coming indoors. And the good thing about uh, the warming centers is once folks hear about it, we make sure to um, share information through all our social media channels and other community partners. Um, Word does get out. And so from the first night that we were open on Christmas Eve to last night, um, you know, there's certainly more people coming indoors. Yes. Um, And, you know, even even, um, some of our Extreme weather shelters will allow more people in um, just to just to keep anybody warm as, as possible. Are there outreach workers? We see pictures, uh, Brooke, of people going around uh, into uh, in the city with a van, uh, typically with coffee and snacks and uh, and uh, toques and uh, scarves and that sort of thing, just basically touching base with as many people as they can see, and and perhaps in some cases saying, "Well, where are you staying tonight?" Well, I don't know. Well, why don't you try this place? Those uh, community outreach workers, I assume, are even busier during conditions like this. Certainly, they are making extra efforts to, to reach out and find folks. Um, City of Vancouver has a homelessness services outreach team, as well as a number of other nonprofit agencies have outreach teams throughout the city. And, um, and you're absolutely right, Sterling. This is a time where um, they are out and about. Um, our park rangers are out and about, mm-hmm. making sure that um, they can reach as many people as possible and pass on the information and encourage them to come indoors. So it's a it's a it's a huge effort, but definitely worth worth uh, worth every single person that is connected with and um, offered a place to come indoors. So, Brooke, for people listening to us right now who want to know these things, uh, where where do we find out information about how to help out? Whether it's to whether it's just to point someone in the direction of a safe shelter, or perhaps donating to a worthy cause, volunteering. There are all sorts of ways in which members of the community can pitch in. Where do they go to to learn more? 
Um, so there again, there are a few ways to do so. If you, if uh, residents want to go to Vancouver.ca, we have a ribbon on our website that um, links you to all the different uh, warming centers and extreme weather response shelters that are open during this cold snap, mm-hmm. um, and following uh, social media as well. So the City of Vancouver's social social media handles. Um, through Twitter and and whatnot, as well as um, calling two one one, is another option for folks. Okay, so that's the that's the basic uh, city of Vancouver information number, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. And then again, if you go to our website, there's a full list of shelters um, online as well. And you you've, you've talked a little bit and very briefly. I uh, wanted to just ask about again again community involvement, whether it's members, individual members of the community, Brooke, or corporate uh, citizens pitching in in times of crisis. Tell us a little bit about the additional support, if indeed any, you're receiving during this cold snap. Um, so again, I mean, we have a, we have a, you know committed committed uh, volunteers throughout the city mm-hmm. who are willing to connect, and they can just anyone can reach out to any of the the different sites depending on where you're located in the city, um, and uh, and connect with the agency directly. Okay, uh, Brooke. Thanks very much for this this morning. We do appreciate uh, the information, and we know that you and your team at uh, Homelessness Services are uh, working overtime, to say the very least. Uh, we commend you for the work and uh, uh, wish you considerable success going forward. Thank you so much, and thank you again to all our partners who are helping making this, helping us to make this possible. Indeed, Brooke. Thanks a lot, Brooke Mellis, Director of Homelessness Services for the City of Vancouver. This is Mornings with Simi. Minus 13 degrees is, in fact, the temperature outside everywhere around Metro Vancouver at 7.36 this Tuesday morning. Sterling Fox sitting in for Simi Sarah. And we yesterday at this time, as we will be doing all week long on both this show and many others here on CKNW, as it is the last week of calendar year 2021, we're taking a look at the top news stories of the year. Yesterday, we had Guy Felicella on talking about the opioid crisis. And today, one of the big biggest stories from this year at at times dominated local news headlines was the lower mainland gang conflict which saw fatal shooting after fatal shooting that were not limited to quiet areas with no innocent bystanders either so as it became more dangerous the province responded with uh, close to half a million dollars to combat gangs recruiting children to recap and review this story a big one for 2021 a voice very familiar to mornings with semi listeners crime report for the Vancouver Sun, Kim Boland joins us again this morning to talk about a story that she's been talking about on these airwaves all year long. Kim, welcome back and good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning to you. And compliments of the season to you, Kim. This is uh, this is quite a story that, by the looks of things, before we look back, looking around the corner into next year, is not going to go away anytime soon at all, is it? No, it certainly is not going to go away. And we have to start even before the beginning of the year. Looking back at a year ago today, we had a 14-year-old boy named Tequil Willis killed, shot to death in Surrey, 14 years old. Mm -hmm. Still an unsolved murder. It really was kind of a scene setter for the year, unfortunately. And this young child really had already been uh, recruited by the Brothers Keepers gang, was not actually a gang member, but was hanging out with some of these guys. Mm -hmm. And yet he's believed to, 
you know, have done something to make them nervous and that people in his own gang are believed to have shot him to death, if you can believe, you know, it, it just was really one of the more shocking uh, cases a little bit before the new year, but in the same week a year ago today, this happened. Yeah. Still unsolved or unprosecuted because I do believe police have uh, a pretty clear idea of what happened to uh, young Tequil, and maybe we'll see charges laid, uh, you know, in 2022 in that murder. And then January was just uh, crazy. Uh, I mean, you know, terrible way to express uh, what was going on here, but we had high-profile gangster Gary Kang, also a businessman, uh, shot to death in front of his parents at their South Surrey home. Uh, so, you know, people sort of broke into the house. This guy, uh, it was a rented home. Uh, people, you know, he thought uh, he was safe and that people didn't know where he lived. Right. So someone got that information and, um, you know, broke in. That was January 6th and shot him to death, 24 years old. And he was out on bail uh, in a Supreme Court case, right? So he was waiting to be sentenced. Ironically, he would have been safer if he'd actually been in jail. In jail, yeah. Yeah, and and then that week, it was just tit-for-tat, tit-for-tat. Gary Kang uh, was connected uh, to the Kang brothers. They had some association with the Red Scorpion gang. Uh, You know, then there was what was believed to be a shooting in retaliation a day later, uh, you know, someone in the Wolfpack gang, and it just kind of went back and forth, back and forth. We had these waves of shootings, right? And, you know, very frightening, and a lot of families left devastated with, you know, the deaths of loved ones, right? So, uh, but I, you know, then you fast forward to April, and there was another rash of very high-profile shootings, another Brothers Keeper uh, member, Harb Dollywell, killed in Coal Harbor, mm-hmm. uh, another very high-profile one, all kinds of people, you know, out at restaurants, uh, walking on the seawall when this uh, shooting happened uh, in the evening uh, in April. Um, So that that was another one that um, there is someone charged. It's believed to be a sort of professional hitman. So we'll see the trial, uh, hopefully, in that case in 2022, uh, if if there's not another development like a guilty plea. Uh, so that one, because that person was basically chased down by someone who was with Harb Dollywell, the Brothers Keepers uh, you know, leader. He was a very high-profile member. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot of evidence in that case. So there was at least charges laid. But, you know, I don't think there was any shooting higher profile than the one at the airport on Mother's Day. Uh, you know, it was just... So shocking. A guy is uh, unloading his luggage with his girlfriend. He's with the United Nations gang, is heading off somewhere on vacation, mm-hmm. and a vehicle pulls up and, you know, he's shot to death right there, you know, um, in front of the airport on the sidewalk. Uh, m- you know, tons of people around. Yes. It, I mean, that one was just uh, really, really shocking, uh, as were so many others. Uh, last year, this year, rather. So, um, you know, that one, again, no charges laid, but I understand that the investigation is very active. Police have an idea of uh, what happened, who was involved, and we may see charges laid uh, this year. So, you know, it it was just a very, uh, particularly the first half of the year, was very, very violent in terms of what is known as the Lower Mainline Gang Conflict. Uh, But police then, 
issued these wanted posters, you know, suggesting that any, you know, a bunch of pictures of people involved in the conflict on them. And, you know, these were in the media. That was in uh, the middle of May. And, you know, the suggestion was if you're near any one of these people, you could be at risk. Right. Uh, so things quieted down somewhat after that because some of the key players sort of left the area. Uh, and I think they, they thought that, you know, they, they weren't appreciative of their pictures being released out into the community. Mm-hmm. But it was an extraordinary measure that police took uh, to, you know, try and make the rest of us a little bit safer. And yes, to turn up the heat on some of these people so that perhaps the violence would stop. So, you know, we did see less gang violence in the second half of the year, but for sure, this gang war is not over yet. Well, Kim, the, the part that I think is is most scary, and you talked about it with the, the shooting down at Coal Harbor and people just walking by on the seawall, the fact that we haven't had more what is referred to as collateral damage, a very dehumanizing way of saying people killed accidentally by gangsters trying to kill each other, the fact that we haven't had more of that is just blind luck because, uh, frankly, Frankly, we've been in situations where it could very easily have happened, and that is particularly unsettling. No, it certainly is. And we do have to recall that in May we had a correctional officer shot to death in Delta. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this fellow, uh, Bikram Deep Randau, was very popular, worked at Fraser Regional Correctional Center, and he was gunned down in a parking lot right. at Scottsdale Mall. And that is a case that it, there's still a strong possibility that was mistaken identity. You know, so it's not that it didn't happen, but you're right, it could happen much more often, and fortunately has not so far. Uh, the federal government, by way of attempting to respond to this, to be seen to be doing something, is trying to do something about handgun bans in cities. I think as a veteran crime reporter, you know how effective that's going to be. Criminals don't care about bans, do they? No, of course they don't. And what's interesting is that in B.C., uh, police have seen a difference in how people involved in organized crime are getting their firearms. Uh, it, back east, the gangsters are still primarily getting them from across the border. Yes. There's all those gun shows in states uh, that border Ontario and Quebec, right. and people can go down there, buy them, smuggle them across. What's happening primarily here in B.C. is that criminals are using straw purchasers. Uh, so they're actually getting someone that has you know, a clean record uh, to go out and, you know, get their their PAL, their firearms license, and, and purchase firearms that are then redirected to the underworld, mm. if you will. So there have been a few investigations that have been quite successful and have resulted in uh, people, you know, getting sentenced to jail because they have been purchasing firearms and diverting them. Uh, you know, two uh, gangsters and some of these firearms have been used in these shootings. And and there's also ghost guns, which are basically being assembled from parts of guns. Yes, yeah. So, you know, there, there's, they're so sophisticated here. And when, you know, we started having this gang problem, uh, when it really exploded maybe 15 years ago or so, the sophistication level of the local gangs was not really that high. True. And it's really changed dramatically in part because they have, you know, connections uh, to international organized crime groups now. Some of them do. 
that are not pulling the strings in terms of the shootings specifically here, you know, but still it has ramped up the level of sophistication of these gangs that are operating here in British Columbia. No question about it. Kim, you have done a superb job here on CKNW on Mornings with Simi throughout the year handling this story, uh, translating the facts uh, that are going on in our community to our listeners in ways that we can at least try to understand. It is such a problem. And as you said at the beginning of this conversation, highly unlikely to be any different going into 2022. We hope to be able to have you on side with us as we tackle another new year. Thanks again, Kim. Thanks, and Happy New Year to you. Thanks very much. The same to you. Crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, legendary Kim Boland, joining us here on Mornings with Simi. And unfortunately, I say this with a tinge of regret, uh, Kim will be back a lot next year uh, to talk more about uh, the problems in our midst. However, if we don't talk about them, then they really become problems. Right? This is Mornings with Simi. And it's not an unreasonable thing on a very chilly Tuesday morning to start thinking hockey, particularly now that it's at least back on television in the form of the World Juniors from Alberta, which, of course, is one of the coldest places on planet Earth. Two Canadian, two games of interest to Canadian fans today with Team Canada playing Austria. The Americans play later in the day against the Swiss. But then it's about what we would probably like to call real hockey involving our favorite NHL teams. Now, here's the deal. Vancouver Canucks were supposed to have played Seattle yesterday. Everybody's yesterday game got postponed. The Canucks are supposed to play in Anaheim on Wednesday against Los Angeles on Thursday and top the week off on heading back home with a game in Seattle on Saturday. How likely are these three games to go forward? How likely is any of the games to go forward with a 70 games now already being forced to be rescheduled. Joining us from Chorus Radio Winnipeg CJOB is sports show host Christian Amell. Christian, good morning. Morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. I know your Jets are scheduled to start back in action on Friday against the Calgary Flames. How likely do you think any of these games are to go? For example, Montreal-Tampa this afternoon. Christian, are you expecting to turn on the TV and see a game? Uh, it's tough. It's all systems go right now, but it's the number of positives on the lightning seems like it's going to be uh, maybe less likely. Here's the thing. What's, what's another game? What's another five games, ten games to the pile, right? There's no hesitation to just play it safe because they already have so many games to make up, so what's another few? Sure. Right? The Jets were supposed to play tomorrow. We got word yesterday that wasn't going to happen as uh, there's still some COVID issues working out with Blackhawks. The Jets had a couple guys go in COVID protocol, but much like the Canucks, the list of guys healthy is almost the whole team, right? Mm-hmm. So the, it, the, And looking at Calgary for the Jets on Friday, I believe that game is going to happen for a couple reasons. One, just about all of the Flames already had it. That's Jets right. Had it, 30 plus people, yeah. It. So if Calgary has been through it, the biggest outbreak, then they should be the one that's most likely to actually be able to play all their games going forward. Sure, good point. And and this is also a case where you don't have to cross the border, right? Mm-hmm. We saw the, the, the league shut down cross-border competition for a few days before the holiday break, and this is a short flight for the Jets to Calgary. So I do believe that game will happen, but in terms of just saying, okay, that game is happening, that means every other game from here on out is going to happen, can't say that. It's definitely going to be... Uh, up and down for sure over the next few weeks as Omicron continues to 
wreak havoc across North America. I think you met, your point about the border is well taken, Christian, and this I'd like, to, I'd like to pick up on that for a second because already I'm hearing about Plan B, pivot on the fly to Plan B, organize some kind of Canadian division like we had last year, keep the border closed because the Americans don't really appreciate this cross-border stuff uh, with the quarantines and all the rest of it, and unless the NHL can get a blanket exemption from these border provisions. Um, are you hearing more of same about uh, some kind of uh, Canadian solution to the problem? I don't think that's going to happen because I don't think there's enough time to put that together. Yeah. I think if you want, what you could do is switch around the schedule so that you get all your Canadian games done now and then worry about the rest later. But that's different for all the Canadian teams, right? The Jets don't have another Canadian team in their division, whereas Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver are in the same division. So that means they just have more scheduled games against each other. Sure, yeah. Same with Ottawa, Toronto, and Montreal. They're all in the same division. Mm -hmm. So they've got more scheduled games against each other. What if they stuck in the middle? Right. So what do they do? Do they just not play any games? So it kind of works, but... In the end, the NHL still wants to get an 82-game schedule in. They've got February now, a couple weeks in there to use that they didn't previously have because the Olympics aren't happening now for the league. So it's the one thing I have thrilling is with the new CDC recommendations that came out about asymptomatic vaccinated positives having to isolate a little less amount of time. Will the NHL look at that? Because I know that's something that um, a number of NHLers, including Kyler Myers in Vancouver, have talked about saying they'd like to see a shorter period of time or some kind of change right. when it comes to the vaccinated positive players who aren't exhibiting symptoms. Yeah. Uh, when the Canucks, by the way, uh, w- with their first regular home game, now that we look around the corner, is next Wednesday, that's January 5th, at home against the Islanders. When and if they play that game, Christian, there will be a half house allowed uh, at maximum, 50% capacity. When the Jets play their next home game, uh, which is scheduled uh, actually for um, uh, the s- second week of January, hosting Seattle, what will the capacity limits be at, uh, at the MTS Arena? Well, it's now Canada Life Center. It's gone through a number of changes in the next last few years, so it's not, not a big deal that uh, you, you don't have the up-to-date name, but zero. Zero. There won't be anyone in there. None. Because the province announced yesterday uh, some restrictions that honestly don't do not do much in, over the course of the general public. There really wasn't much. They're pretty toothless as far as I'm concerned, but the Bell or the Canada Life Center capacity could be 250 people or... Or zero, basically, with the two options the Jets had. Right. They thought, well, that's dumb. Let's just make it zero. So, yeah, they don't have another home game until the 8th. So they have time to to prepare for this. But, yeah, no, they were going to have 50% capacity. That was announced about a week ago. Then a couple home games got canceled. Right. And now it's zero. So they don't have to worry about, oh, how are we going to let some people in and not others? How do we make this choice? No one comes for at least the next four home games, I believe for the Jets, and then they will, we'll see what the next round of restrictions are. We've also seen that already in Montreal. There's no, uh, no fans, that's right. 50% in Alberta with the juniors yep. and their NHL teams once they're back, as well as Ontario. I'm not sure if this will continue to, to ramp up, and then maybe in BC they end up getting to a point where zero fans or other jurisdictions in the States 
states do that seems less likely because the U.S. seem to have less strict rules about this stuff than the Canadians do. But point is, they want to get the games going. If no fans can come, it's tough luck because we know that the gate revenue is big, but better hockey in front of no people than no hockey at all. Uh, good point, exactly. And let me just uh, pick up on this before I let you go. The league lost a ton of money last year based on no fans, Christian. And they're hoping, mm-hmm. many teams are hoping to make at least some of it back this year. And this is a decided setback for that target. But aside from that, I, I think you're. I think the league is is very anxious to just carry on. Absolutely, right? They, they want to play games. But you can understand their hesitancy based on the number of positives, right? We've seen more positives in the last month than really we ever saw in the pandemic season last year. You bet. And this is with a lot of people who are vaccinated. Just with everybody in the league, I think, except Tyler Bertuzzi, is vaccinated. And we've seen that Omicron can still infect you, but severe cases, we're not really seeing that. We're just seeing people get it and then recover. We saw a lot of people get it and, and really get sick in Vancouver last year in their outbreak. But mm-hmm. thankfully, the vaccine is working in terms of preventing serious outcomes. The question is, can the, will the league change its rules when it comes to how it treats just cases? Or, or are they okay with how it stands right now? They think this break cut it down and they can get back to a regular playing schedule. They do not want to take any kind of pause again. Absolutely not. They want to get to the all-star break from here on out with as minimal disruption as possible. But the league is not in control of the virus. The virus is in control of anything. So they'll be at the mercy of it until we're, we're through this pandemic. No question. A great line, too, this morning, Christian. Uh, better hockey in front of no fans than no hockey at all. That's my takeaway. Thanks very much for this. Great to have you on the show this morning. My pleasure. Have a good day. There's Christian Amell from CJOB Winnipeg Chorus Radio Sports Guy at the home of the Jet. This is Mornings with Simi. It is a pleasure to be with you again this morning. Sterling Fox sitting in for Simi Sarah. For decades, BC has been home to thousands of world-renowned craft farmers known for cultivating high-quality, small-batch cannabis. Unfortunately, over-regulation has prevented BC's innovative craft cannabis sector from achieving its full potential, keeping tens of thousands of these highly skilled Canadians out of the market they created. Here to talk about it is the volunteer secretary of the BC Craft Farmers Co-op, also a former advisor to the Federal Minister of Health. A pleasure to say good morning to David Herford. David, hello. Good morning, Sterling. Good morning. Happy uh, holidays to you. Well, compliments of the season to you as well, David. We had a conversation about this to a degree yesterday. Basically, what uh, what people need to know is that there is an effort underway by the government of British Columbia to try to convince people who have been growing cannabis illegally to cross over into the legal market. And and but then we are also coming to be aware of the fact that there is a divided problem in terms of uh, jurisdictions, retail and the sale of cannabis and distribution of cannabis in British Columbia and every other Canadian province is up to the province. However, David, licenses for growing in any province in Canada are controlled by the Federal Minister of Health, a department that you used to work for. But with this kind of divided administration, it makes it difficult to get things done, doesn't it? Yeah, I think uh, I think you put it well, Sterling. It leads to lost opportunities. Essentially, that's the bottom line for our BC economy, and for consumers who don't have access now to the product that they want. 
which is fresh, uh, locally grown cannabis from people who are passionate about the plant and, and their craft. So I think uh, the jurisdictional challenges are very difficult. Uh, the BC government, where you know, we've had lots of conversations with him, but mm-hmm. it's been three years, and we've not been able to really move the bar, even in areas of provincial jurisdiction. I think your guest yesterday put it well. That some of the, you know, we have to expect Ottawa to be out of touch with, with things that are going on in British Columbia. Right, for sure. We still, need to, we still need to change that, and we are working to try and change the regulations to get uh, the thousands of medical farmers that are licensed in this province right now into the new system. But for the BC government, we really are missing their leadership. Uh, you know, for a province that has the most to lose by the current situation, we think there should be much more sense of urgency with the BC government. We don't have an economic development strategy for the craft sector, which can create thousands and thousands of jobs in this province and in rural communities who particularly uh, uh, need it. So we don't have that central strategy. And in fact, in many cases, the provincial policy seems to be working against these craft farmers. So it's, it's, it's a head scratcher and we hope the BC government will reconsider and show some leadership and really pull this uh, this file together over the coming year. Well, the notion, for example, of cannabis tourism was raised and has been raised umpteen times by people in the sector, uh, relaying it as, yes, yet another way to for government to enhance their revenues. First of all, they're taking tax dollars out of cannabis purchases, and if they've got tourists coming willing to drop all sorts of dough to do what they do already in the Okanagan doing the winery tours, why wouldn't that also not only enhance the sector, but enhance the province's coffers. Uh, that seems to make a great deal of sense to some people. Absolutely. And you said it yesterday about the craft uh, distilleries and the craft beer, etc. When people can travel safely again, BC will be a destination. We're different than the states because nationally it's legal. So you can come through the Kelowna Airport or Vancouver Airport and tell people, ask, why are you coming? You're coming to tour small cannabis farms. Sure. They'll pat you on the back and give you a brochure. In the mm-hmm. States, the danger is they may not even let you into the country because it's not legal there. So we have this incredible opportunity that we're just missing. There's an Indigenous piece to this as well. There's many Indigenous uh, governments in B.C. that are interested in this. We're having a, a B.C. Cannabis Summit in Kelowna in April, COVID willing. And a big part of that discussion is going to be about cannabis tourism. Uh, BC is known around the world. Uh, We're the best at this in the world, which makes us squandering this opportunity Mm -hmm. even more serious. Uh, Our farmers grow cannabis better than anybody else. We have a huge demand for this product, not just from local consumers, but you know, our calls at the co-op are from other provinces who are hearing that BC is an unfriendly purchasing jurisdiction for craft and they want to buy bc craft cannabis and get it to toronto and you can't sell it to them yet well our farmers our farmers can uh, absolutely because they're going to the bc government there's only about 60 licensed in the province in the first three years to your point sterling how mm. slow this pace has gone but those 60 that have made it through the system you know they're warriors and they have really sacrificed uh, but the bc government is is making it difficult for them on their purchasing so what they're starting to do now is get calls from other provinces who want who understand the value of BC cannabis sure. and want it in their stores in Saskatchewan or Toronto. So the danger is if you're living in Kamloops and you want to buy cannabis from the local cannabis farmer, uh, you might have to go to Saskatoon to get it mm. because those jurisdictions are coming in and being much more friendly and offering better prices, better better rates. 
for our farmers to get BC product than the BC government is even offering. So there's a disconnect in the provincial government between the various agencies that are involved in this file. They don't seem to be talking to each other, and some of their policies are running counter to the interests of our BC craft farmers. So we've got a lot of a lot of work to do this year, and that's where, again, I think political leadership at the provincial level is very much required here. Right, and that line that I used, by the way, unfortunately, over-regulation has prevented BC's innovative craft cannabis centre from achieving its full potential, keeping tens of thousands of these highly skilled Canadians out of the market they created, is a direct quote from your website, the bccraftfarmerscoop.com. Uh, we'll talk to us about only a couple of minutes here, but David, tell us about the over-regulation that really needs to be set aside. Well, yes, and this is in, in Ottawa. I think that there's a sense that, you know, there's not a lot of appetite for small farmers. Right now, most of the market is controlled by large companies mm-hmm. that are run out of the U.S., Sure, about uh, four out of the five large companies. So, so most of the cannabis now in our market, because of the legal system, is coming from very large producers. And this is a year now where we get a chance to reset the regulations, you know, Overregulated. It's incredible to see how much inspection regime is in place. You know, these these small craft farms are inspected more than healthcare facilities are. So there's a real bias against them. There's right. still stigma in the system. And I think with the provincial government support, with the premier's support, with the minister's support, we can go to Ottawa this year and get those regulations changed. If we can't, and we're still in a situation where we've got 20 or 30 farmers only being approved each year then we should seriously look at B.C. taking back licensing and and talking to Ottawa about letting B.C. license our own cannabis farmers because we can't rely on Ottawa to get it right. Yeah, David, are you you comfortable uh, uh, um, being uh, able to convince the government in Victoria that craft uh, cannabis farmers deserve the same respect at the level of government that craft brewers currently enjoy province-wide? Is that doable from where you sit? I am confident. I just think they need to trust the sector to work with us as a partner uh, to develop an economic plan. I think the premier gets it. I think that there's a a strong support at the political level. Uh, The challenges we have generally are with with officials. So we have good support from MPs, MLAs that we've talked to. They see the opportunity for, for job creation. Every farmer creates at least three jobs. And we could have a thousand farmers growing cannabis in this province legally in the next 12 months. That's 3,000 jobs, direct jobs in B.C. They're shovel-ready. That's huge economic opportunities. That's great revenues that we can put back into our health care system, into our child care system. I think the opportunity is just too good, and I, I am optimistic that our provincial government and our elected officials federally will get the message this year, particularly as the large producers continue to have trouble. Yeah, uh, And I think that uh, I am optimistic, and I think with ongoing interest, and thanks to your coverage, Sterling and others, I do believe that we will see some progress over the coming year. Lots of dough at stake here, friends. The first year, monthly retail sales in B.C. was $1.2 million. That was in December of the first year of legality. The second year, it went from $1.2 to $18 million. Last year, it went from 18 to $48 million. That's in one month in, uh, in December of each of those three last years. There's serious dollars at play here. And uh, uh, British Columbia cannabis farmers just looking for 
for the same degree of respect that their colleagues in the craft brewing industry already enjoy. David Herford from the BC Craft Farmers Co-op, thanks very much for this. Uh, Another enlightening discussion uh, with regards to what's really going on in the interior of our province. Thank you. Thank you, Sterling. David Herford from the BC Craft Farmers Co-op. It is just checking the numbers here, okay? It's a winds out of the east-southeast at 14. The current temperature at Georgia and Granville here in downtown Vancouver is minus 12. So you combine the minus 12 with the 14 kilometer per hour winds, and the real temperature is minus 19 with the wind sail.